Welcome to the Molecular Moments Podcast. In today's episode, we sat down with our guest, Dr. Laura Sepp Lorenzino, Chief Scientific Officer at Intellia Therapeutics. Laura is an innovative leader in drug discovery and development of small molecule and oligonucleotide therapeutics. She's also led vaccine development programs, and more recently, she has made her mark in the exciting field of gene therapy and gene editing. She has over 30 years of experience in academic and industrial settings. I first met Laura several years ago when she was the keynote speaker at the Land O'Lakes Bioanalytical Meeting, and I've been a fan ever since. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. We're talking scientists as scientists do. So without further ado, here's the sixth episode of Molecular Moments. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. I'm delighted to have you join me today. Can we start with you giving us a few highlights from your career? Chad, thank you so much for having me today. I've been listening to your Molecular Moments podcast and, you know, it's really, really very engaging and informative. So, you know, I, I hope that today's episode will meet that mark. So I'm a biochemist by training. I was born, went to school in Argentina. Then I came to the U.S. to do my Ph.D. and postgraduate work. And then I've been working in industry since 1999, so long time in, in industry. Um, first at Merck, uh, then I went to Alnylam, Vertex. Uh, now I'm the chief scientific officer at Intelia Therapeutics really having each of these uh, experiences, you know, build, you know, my, my professional experience, but, you know, it's all of them were different and it gave me the opportunity to, to learn different things from, you know, the different companies and, you know, I'm still learning. This is what makes it fun. Laura, I'm really excited to explore that with you. And one of the topics that I'm curious about is how you made this transition coming from Argentina to the United States for graduate school and uh, what kept you here. And tell me about what brings a, a girl then, I guess, pretty young uh, here to the U.S. So I studied biochemistry, pharmacy and biochemistry at the University of Buenos Aires. And although my mom is a pharmacist and her wish was that I was going to take over the family business, I was always drawn towards research. And I started doing my PhD in Argentina. And my boyfriend at that time was going to start his PhD in the U.S. So... His sister, who is smart and very practical person, suggested that maybe we should do the PhD in the same geographical lo location. And, you know, and, and I quit the program in Argentina and I joined uh, him in coming to the U.S. So we were both newlyweds. And, you know, I think we were two weeks after our marriage uh, when we both started graduate school. So it was, you know, quite an awesome experience, right? And, you know, starting, you know, our life uh, in a different country, different language, and both of us pursuing our dreams, you know. At that time, he was a chemist. I was doing biochemistry. It was really great to have each other to help, you know, support and 
you know, pushes forward, right? You know, I can tell you that, you know, and anybody who has immigrated can share this, that, you know, as you go to a different country, different language, different culture, you know, you encounter, you know, a number of challenges. And, you know, it's good to have someone as your partner to help you figure out how to navigate those new challenges together. Well, uh, you may not have ended up as a pharmacist, but I have to believe your mother would be proud of you uh, for what you've achieved in drug development. Uh, so your mother was a pharmacist and then you wanted to do uh, research and uh, move forward in, in that direction. It's a little bit, uh, little bit different direction, but uh, are there any other personal connections or anything else that really drove you into science or, or maybe why research versus taking up the family business? Yeah, and I think that mom is responsible for that as well. So I grew up going to her pharmacy and, you know, she had books and magazines. So, you know, even as a young child, I would like flip through all of that and make believe, you know, that I was contributing to those journals, right? But then one day she took me to a seminar and you'll appreciate that. They were showing a biodistribution of, of a drug, right? And they were doing this whole body autoradiography on, you know, the distribution and disposition of a drug. And seeing how that, you know, labeled drug, you know, was taken in the animal, distributed, how it made it to the target organ, right? And then, and I was nine, I was really young, but you know, the guy who explained it, you know, somehow made it really understandable. And that's when it clicked. It was like, this is so awesome. Nothing compares to this. I really got lucky because I had people who helped me, you know, with opportunities and mentoring and this has been invaluable to me, you know, and, and it's so important for, for us now to pay it forward, right? To do the same for the younger generations. Without a doubt. So I want to jump right into some of the science and I'm going to go right into what you're working on now in the space of gene therapy and gene editing. And uh, maybe you can give a um, three to five minute primer on what's gene therapy, gene therapy versus gene editing and kind of how those play in with the modern science. Because I'm thinking when you were in that pharmacy in your mom's pharmacy, you probably weren't thinking about, wow, if there was a drug that could change your genes, you know, so tell us about that. Yeah, not at that time. Yeah, so gene therapy and gene editing are a new class of therapeutic modalities. And here we're aiming to treat diseases at the genetic level. That is, you know, the DNA level, which is the source of instructions that tells a cell how to behave in the context of the organism. What happens is that when those instructions are missing or they're wrong or incomplete, that's what leads to disease. With gene therapy and gene editing, we are aiming to reset those instructions. And, you know, there are a number of analogies of, you know, using a word editor or writing computer code that, you know, I think that they are really good illustrations to make the point. So with gene therapy, you're not changing the master code, but what you're doing is that you're adding, you know, a small program that, you know, runs in parallel and sends new or overriding commands to address, you know, this disease-causing event. 
what we're doing with gene editing, uh, and this is what we're doing at Intelia Therapeutics and other companies in the space, is that we're actually going to that master code and we're changing the information in the appropriate line. So we're either deleting an entire command line or you could add a new one, or in some cases, you know, if there is a typo, right, we could just go and precisely, specifically make that, you know, small change that at the end is, you know, the driver of, of disease. You know, now moving on to the language of, you know, genetics. So the, you know, the deletion, it's called a knockout. So you eliminate a gene that's not functioning or hyperactive. You could do an insertion uh, or a knocking where you're adding a gene that has been missing. And in some cases, we can do correction. And this is, you know, particularly when there are very defined mutations that, you know, we can use some of the new tools to go and, and fix that. So, you know, with these approaches, in particular with gene editing, the because we're changing this master code, you know, the goal that we're aiming is that this is going to be a permanent change in that cell and we're looking to have potentially one and done curative treatments. And we can discuss a bit more about, you know, that. Yeah. And I'm going to jump to something that scares a lot of people about this, right? Earlier when we were talking before the podcast, you heard a reference to the superheroes. I was uh, talking with a uh, previous guest with Jim McNally and said, can we create superheroes with our gene therapy? But in reality, what really does make a lot of people nervous about gene therapy is either side effects or misusing the technology. And so could you talk about the potential side effects and what we're doing and why this really is a safe tool for us to use to cure people? Like I said, it's a it's a one and done cure. So, yeah, so I, I'm going to I think that there are two layers in, in your questions. One, you know, and one is the ethical aspects of this. Are we going to be creating superheroes with, you know, special powers? Uh, you know, this is not where we're going, you know, as companies, as a field, you know, as a scientific community. Although, you know, we heard in 2018, right, about these scientists in, in China editing embryos, right? Uh, there is a moratorium on doing that. And, you know, we all ascribe to that, right? I think it's right now we're doing somatic editing, not germline editing, and we're addressing disease, nothing beyond that. So then the second part of the question is, you know, how safe is this, right? Because this is, you know, gene, so we're modifying the genes, right? So there are a number of molecular tools that allow us to precisely design the effectors, you know, and I'm talking more about, you know, CRISPR, how the CRISPR machinery is going to find the exact region in the genome where we want to introduce the edit and nowhere else, right? So you could use a number of tools in silico and in the lab to figure that out. But also we have a number of robust very well characterized and accepted by regulatory agencies on how we are experimentally evaluating 
the on-target versus the potential off-target effects. And the goal, as you know, we are developing human therapeutics, is to have these therapeutics present no off-targets at doses that are going to be used in the humans, in the patients. And to that, you add, you know, safety margin, right? So it's uh, our goal is to find the safest, you know, more efficacious uh, candidates as possible. As I was saying about regulatory agencies, right? So, you know, the regulatory agencies in the U.S. and Europe and you know, other countries, they have been learning and partnering with the scientific community to understand how to do this and what to require from companies that are developing therapeutics to ensure that the highest standards are being met. So there is, you know, data now coming from, for example, uh, sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia uh, using CRISPR edited hematopoietic stem cells that have really transformed the lives of, you know, the patients that have received them, right? And there is no ill effects. We at Intelia, we have a, you know, large number of uh, preclinical studies we have done. And now we're in the clinic uh, with our first systemically administered uh, uh, CRISPR drug. So, you know, as more companies and ourselves continue to advance these therapies to the clinic, you know, I believe that, you know, the data is robust and we're going to appease some of these potential concerns that, you know, people may have. Yeah. And I think you touched on exactly what I wanted to mention next is that when you think about the diseases that we're really and truly curing, a few years ago, these seemed like diseases often without a cure. And typically when I when I think of uh, gene therapies, uh, gene editing, uh, we see a lot of treatments in, onco- in the oncology space, of course, rare diseases, and also in eye diseases. So maybe you could touch again, there's a, a probably a, it's a multi-layer answer there, but maybe you could just explain a little bit why those are the spaces where we see gene therapies being so effective for people. So when we're thinking about, you know, how to deploy these new technologies, right? So one of the considerations is, you know, first, what can the technology do to fix a particular biological problem? And are there other therapies available today uh, that are, you know, providing benefit to those patients? If the answer to that is no, right, there is this unmet medical need, right? So, uh, and how can you help uh, those patients? For new technologies, you look at opportunities where there is high unmedical need and where the potential risk of taking a new therapeutic modality are outweighed by that, you know, potential benefit that those patients are going to receive. You know, and, and I'll draw from, you know, one example from gene therapy, right? For example, uh, for um, spinal muscular uh, atrophy, uh, this is a genetic defect in which for type A, you know, the, the patients will die by, you know, a year of age or, you know, very young through the work done by Avexis and now by Novartis. You know, these kids are living, they are riding bicycles, you know, it's it's really game changing. And this is, you know, for me, a good example of, you know, huge unmet medical need and how a novel therapy 
was really able to transform the lives of these patients. You could see it as the next step to um, a, a Star Trek type world where it seems that nobody is sick, right? I mean, that's, uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan, so. <laughs> so I am too. Related. Oh, good. Well, we're going we're gonna to hit that later then. Uh, so you touched on something that I'm actually curious about is it because my background is not extremely strong in the gene therapy space is preclinical. So uh, traditionally, a preclinical program supporting a pharmaceutical development, you, you're giving the same drug to a, a couple of different species, large and small, and you look for toxic effects. And you know that for the most part, the animals are going to metabolize it in a similar way to, to humans. And we've, we've got it worked out how to translate those effects. And it's, and it's uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, but in a gene therapy program, what does a gene therapy preclinical program look like? So for any of the, and this is a big difference with small molecules, right? So, you know, in small differences and similarities, right? Because in a small molecule for your tox species, you want to make sure that, you know, your small molecules will uh, have activity against, you know, the rodent um, gene or the rodent protein, right? Um, uh, so for for gene therapy and for gene editing, particular, more of what we're doing. Um, so, you know, the standard preclinical packages, right? So you, you do need to look at toxicity, understand the sources of toxicity that come from the drug format, all the elements that make up the drug. And I, we can talk about delivery in, in a few moments. The only thing that's different, for, for example, for gene editing, as we were just discussing, is this in-depth characterization of the on-target and potential off-targets and showing that, you know, there is nothing that could lead to potential toxicity. Because the sequences, uh, the DNA sequence is often not conserved between species. If they're conserved, no problem, because you could use your clinical candidate in non-human primates or rodents, and that will be perfect. In some other cases, you may want depending on the regulatory agency's advice, right? You may want to have a surrogate to at least to understand exacerbated pharmacology, right? And that's that's really helpful. You know, but there is nothing very different from what you would do from other therapeutic modalities. The other aspect of this is that for platform technologies in which the components are basically the same from program to program. You know, there is a lot of information that you can draw from the past. And let me explain this a bit better. So for delivering, uh, you know, these nucleic acid therapies, whether it's gene therapy or gene editing, in the majority of the cases, you require what's called a delivery vehicle. Uh, this is either a non-viral formulation, like a lipid nanoparticle or a polymer, or a viral formulation. And the thing that changes is what goes inside, right? So once you understand the biodistribution, the ADMI properties of that delivery vehicle, right, that's going to be the same independent of the cargo that they have. You know, and that characterization, you know, translates from program to program. And that's one of the, 
you know, really nice aspects of these modular platforms, right? Because you understand what to expect. And then you, what's different is obviously the pharmacology of the gene or edit you're trying to elicit. But, but it's, it sounds like it's a little bit of plug and play in a sense, you know, that'd be a real simplification of it. But Yes. Yeah. yeah to, and, you know, and that translates also on the CMC, right, on the technical operations and, you know, all the analytical tools that you need to develop to characterize all the components, you know, the drug substance and the drug product. So there is a lot of synergies that are gained from, from you know, some of these modular uh, platform technologies. Yeah, without a doubt. So, so you touched a little bit on the on the delivery, and it sounded like you have more to say on that. I think I think the delivery of these therapies is one of the most exciting aspects of how how they function, and it's something that that we get the opportunity, um, you know, talking to different companies within you know within Bioagilytics, how they're going about it and why they're going about it using different adenoviruses and things like that for delivery. So maybe you want to touch on that a little more. Sure. Yeah. So, and I'll start with how we're approaching it at Intelia. So, you know, using gene editing, uh, first, there are two major classes of uses. One is to take cells, putting them on a dish and introducing the edits, that rewiring of the instructions that you want to have in your cell product. And then you would introduce that into the patient. And, you know, for that, there is a number of established and uh, more novel delivery technologies, but there is the cell that is the therapy, right? And the applications for that is for immune oncology, for autoimmune diseases, for hematopoietic stem cell diseases like sickle cell disease and regenerative medicine. The other big category is the use of, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 or, you know, gene therapy, genes replacement uh, in vivo, where now you're administering these, you know, in our case, the CRISPR machinery to a patient. And you could do that in several ways. One is that it could be local administration. For example, subretinal injection in the eye, right, for some of these inherited retinal dystrophies. Or you could give it by inhalation to go to the lung. Um, or in the brain or, you know, intrathecal delivery for local administration to CNS. We can also give it by systemic administration, and that's uh, by an infusion, intravenous infusion, where you're delivering it to the bloodstream, and then you need to make sure that, you know, that delivery vehicle makes it to the organ, the target organ, and then to the cells in that target organ. And this last approach is what we are using at Intelia for our in vivo portfolio. For that, we have chosen to use a non-viral delivery system that's called a lipid nanoparticle or LMP delivery kind of like a ball of fat if you really want to um, if you really want to get it, you want to really make it simple lipids are fat so it's like it's like you're delivering a gene therapy with a little ball of fat yeah yeah so this is like eating a big hamburger with a gift and <laughs> only it's healthy <laughs> the gift that comes into those little you know globals is in our case the the crispr machinery that make will make the edit and you know the body 
recognizes these fat globules as dietary fat. So it will process them the same way. So it's a really great uh, means of delivering nucleic acids to the hepatocytes in the liver. And this is the technology we're exploiting. And there are a number of advantages. Uh, you know, the, the, the delivery, you know, lipid nanoparticles are not immunogenic. So there is, you know, all patients would qualify uh, to get them. You know, they're safe. It's a clinically validated approach. Uh, there is a drug called Ompatro uh, developed by my former company, Alnylam, that's, you know, it's a, it's a commercial product because it's a chemical synthesis, you know, uh, it doesn't have the complexities that making viruses do, right? So you could make tons of very homogeneous particles and, you know, and we can, there is a lot of chemistry that we can apply to make them do different things, uh, take different cargos, potentially go to different organs. And that's uh, what we're working on. Other companies are exploring uh, viral delivery as their main, you know, for their, um, you know, first products. Most of them have for gene, for systemic or local administration use, people use adenoviral associated vectors or, or AAV. They have different tropisms. So there is a number of serotype, you know, it's a class of viruses with small differences on their capsid. And those differences result in the viruses being able to go to different cell types in the body. So, you know, some go great to liver, others go to muscle, others, you know, work really well in the eye or in CNS. So that that is a great advantage of uh, that technology. Some of the disadvantages is, you know, there is pre-existing immunity to the AAV. So there is a percentage of the population that will not be able to receive the therapy because they have neutralizing antibodies. Fortunately, after people get a dose, they will. If they didn't have antibodies before, they will now. So redosing is, uh, is, is an issue. You know, and it's, it's effective, but, you know, could be a lot better, right? Um, so, for example, with lipid nanoparticles, we can get to every hepatocyte in the liver. With AAV, that number is much, much lower. And then the complexities of making a biologic, right? So there the the product is the process you follow. And, you know, that's uh, that's an art. Yeah, making the DNA is fairly straightforward, but making the uh, complete drug and, as and assembling it into a uh, deliverable product is, well, it's a, it's a whole new different science in itself, I guess. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about vaccines with you since that's obviously a hot topic right now. But I have one, one more question. I just I want you to think into your crystal ball. Quite often with the, well, always with these uh, gene therapies, we're repairing a very small piece of your DNA, even, you know, a single point mutation or, or, or we're, you know, repairing a deletion. But there's so many more complex genetic diseases. I'm curious, how far do you think we can take this DNA repair or how far should we take this to solve uh, more complex uh, chromosomal disorders? 
So uh, at Intel, I'm really excited about our insertion capabilities in the lever. So there we can put entire genes that have been either missing or, you know, are not functioning in the liver. And we're doing that for hemophilia A and B with our partner Regeneron and then alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And we can get really unprecedented levels of expression in non-human primates. So you could put really large pieces of DNA. You know, as we're building the proof, right, that this technology works, there are lots of advances, you know, new ideas and new technologies on how to introduce different edits or do gene therapy more efficiently. You know, part of my job as, you know, the CSO is to have a good pulse on what are the tools that we need to have in our toolbox for us to be able to do the right type of edit, genetic change for the right type of disease. So, you know, it's not that, you know, if you have a hammer, that's the only thing you need. You need to have, you know, a, a complete toolbox. And, and I think that through that toolbox development, we will be able to make more sophisticated and, you know, and really expand the utility of these technologies, even to the point of going after complex um, genetic diseases that go beyond, you know, one gene, right? These monogenic diseases. If there are, you know, chromosomal number abnormalities, you know, can you fix that? Today, not yet, but yeah, I would think in the near future, you know, five to 10 years, I'm confident we're going to be making progress on that as well. All the diseases you mentioned that we are able to cure or close to a cure on the curing hemophilia, right, at a base level uh, where it's just gone, right? I mean, imagine that and, and the many other diseases. So I'm really excited about that. You have a background in vaccines. Honestly, I don't, vaccines haven't been very exciting uh, for a long time, other than immuno-oncology, right? Immuno-oncology aside, but uh, vaccines haven't been all that exciting for a long, long time, right? And, and it's programs that uh, a lot of companies have just kind of, you know, they kind of kept them along because it was it was a good thing to do and, you know, and they probably made some money, but uh, that all changed with the pandemic. So tell me a little bit from what you've seen, how how vaccines have changed over the last 15 years or so. Yeah, and, and let me qualify my experience here. So when I was at Merck, I had the opportunity to be part of the vaccines research group. So, uh, you know, I, I learned from a really talented, you know, team, you know, John Shiver, who's now at Sanofi Pasteur, was, you know, my, my boss and the leader of the group, you know, and, and Catherine Jansen, who is leading the Pfizer, uh, she was at Merck too. So it was, you know, really great, knowledgeable group of people. So, yeah, so vaccines, people have taken vaccines for granted to what you were saying, right? You know, for me is, you know, vaccine, without doubt, is the most impactful achievement in medicine, right? So if, if you're looking at what has really saved lives and eradicated vaccines, that's vaccines, you know, and, and take it from Jenner's, you know, vaccine for smallpox to, you know, now that was eradicated to all the, you know, childhood diseases, you know, when even when I was a little kid, you know, people get measles, you know, and now it's gone, right? I was actually telling my son just yesterday about my uh, mom sent me out 
to catch chicken pox when I was maybe four or five years old. Go get chicken pox now because it's convenient, right? Exactly. <laughs> and he's like, well, nobody gets chicken pox. I said, that's because we all get vaccinated, Jack. Exactly. Like, you know, you haven't entered kindergarten, so go get it because we don't want you to miss school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. How things have changed. So, yes. um, particularly, I'm very excited about the mRNA you know, lipid nanoparticle vaccines for obvious reasons, right? I mean, this is what I'm working on. The example of how, you know, BioNTech and Moderna, right, have rapidly, you know, identified potent vaccines for COVID-19, um, you know, the scalability, the speed, uh, the efficacy, and how now that's also been applied as, you know, these um, variants of the virus are emerging, how quickly they can react, right, and, and modify, you know, the, the vaccine, you know, uh, as needed. Uh, this is, you know, uh, uh, is a leap you know, kudos to, to my colleagues doing that, doing that. Yeah, neither of my parents were scientists. So when uh, they were fortunate enough to get the first shot of the vaccine, and I think my, I think my mom gets her next shot on, on uh, Saturday. She's a week ahead of my dad because she got the Pfizer. So, uh, so she's excited about that. But I was telling her when she got the vaccine, she's like, okay, so how long will it take before I have antibodies and how's that work? And I said, well, first get your vaccine and then visualize your ribosomes working hard, right? <laughs> cranking, cranking the RNA and making the protein. So then your immune system can kick in and do their job. And so I was trying to give her a little, uh, a little push, right? Like visualize what your immune system is doing to, uh, to fight this virus. So I like that you qualified your experience a little bit in your, in your expertise, because I've seen that with a number of the scientists I talk to who, who I absolutely consider experts. Uh, but, uh, but then as soon as you see vaccine, I say, oh, Laura is definitely an expert. And you are, right? But, you know, there's, there's different levels. But I, I get asked all the time also uh, those questions because they know I'm a scientist. But for Pete's sake, I'm a, I'm a chemist, right? So, uh, <laughs> so, so uh, um, uh, you know, we, we all have become uh, virus and vaccine experts. One of the things that's really exciting with the vaccine development, uh, and you touched on, is how rapidly those were developed. Uh, the groundwork was there, but the disease didn't exist a year and a half ago. Now we have a cure, if you will, in, in, the, form, or in the form of a vaccine or a prevention, I guess you would say. But uh, do you think we can take that lesson of developing a drug in nine months or developing a vaccine in nine months and apply it to other drugs and other therapies with, a, with critical unmet needs? Yes, I think so. And, and for LMPs and vaccines, right? So big difference with developing biologics or small molecules, right? Where it's an enormous space. For nucleic acid technologies, you know, the code is written. You just need to make it, right? So that cuts years of, you know, drug design. You know, it's you already know what the instructions are. You know, in the case of, you know, the spike uh, protein for uh, SARS-CoV-2, you know, once that was known, you just make it, right? And so for diseases in which, you know, you can apply these modular solutions, I think that you can move fast. You know, and, and examples, you know, some of my colleagues in the oligotherapeutic society meeting, you know, we, you know, as you know, there are uh, multiple oligonucleotide type of drugs being developed, 
whether it's short interfering RNAs or siRNAs or a single strand, you know, antisense and splice switching type oligos. Um, you know, those have been clinically validated. Uh, you can make it, you know, the synthesis, the characterization, all of that excess. So um, people are now beginning to think about using that platform that exists for end of one type of, you know, therapies, right? So for these hyper personalized therapies, uh, we'll need to figure out as, you know, as a field, how to really execute through that, because, you know, it's today the cost and, you know, it's um, not there yet. But, you know, there is a, a really great example um, for uh, that was the lead was Team U at Boston Children's Hospital, right? Where he, there was a patient with a rare disease. He identified the mutation and developed single-stranded oligonucleotide and started treating that patient. That was done. There is a, all of this is published, so I don't know exactly the time, but it was months, right? Between the sequence and being able to treat that patient. So is it possible? Yes, it's possible. How much of that we're going to see being implemented? We'll need to wait and see. Wow, my head's exploding with that. This is amazing. Uh, really, really have enjoyed listening to all this science. I want to talk about mentors a little bit. That's something I try to hit on in all of my Molecular Moments uh, episodes. And uh, you, I have to believe that as a CSO, mentoring is a big part of that. And boy, I feel like you've taught me so much uh, just sitting here today. So, and you mentioned it actually earlier, the the mentoring uh, that, that you received. Can you just talk a little bit about that uh, in your experience there? Yeah, so I think that mentoring is one of the great gifts that you can give someone and that you can receive, you know, because here, you know, people are sharing with you the wisdom of their knowledge and their experiences. And and for me, it's, uh, you know, it's one of the core components as a, you know, as a leader and as a people manager. So at Intelia, we are very keen in, you know, in working with our teams, uh, with mentoring and also really uh, elucidating different career paths, right? Because, you know, sometimes, you know, when you go to grad school or even in college, right, it's kind of, you know, very limited what, you know, the opportunities are, right? So for me, I had formal and informal mentors, you know, throughout my career. I have a very close group of friends. We call each other the Wonder Women. We work together at Merck. You know, we all come from different backgrounds and we help each other, you know, and this is like a sounding board. One of the things I really enjoy with them is that, you know, you can be completely open and vulnerable because you know that, you know, they really want to be there for you and provide you know, this actionable feedback, right? So here is a problem. This is how I approach it. What did you do not do? So, I, you know, I encourage people to to have this, you know, group of people that are going to be with them throughout their career. So I think that's really, really important. The other is the misconception that in a mentoring, you know, relationship, someone has to be much higher than, you know, the mentor needs to be much higher than the mentee and, I don't think that applies, right? So I have gained, 
a lot of knowledge from people I mentor, right? Perhaps more than what they gotten from me. So, you know, and you could have, you know, peer mentoring, which is, you know, very important as, as well. The other is, I mentioned before, but is this concept of paying it forward. So as people have helped you, make sure you do that to, to others, you know, and at the end, it all is a big circle, right? Because, you know, it comes back to you at one point. Karma, good karma, but karma too. Just want to touch on one last point with you. Boy, we're going on about a year now of, of COVID and, and lockdown started in March. Anything you took on in 2020 or, you know, over the course of COVID, anything you've, you've focused on? What, what's been your outlet here over the last year, almost a year? So the silver lining of COVID times was that I could spend more time with my family. Um, and, you know, I am really grateful about that. Hobbies. I spend a lot of time in meetings, so I'm in my office. So, um, you know, besides learning how to solve the Ruby Cube, which was something that was pending from my high school years, I guess. <laughs> I've been doing, you know, growing uh, succulents, which is, is so fun. I mean, it's slow. I wish I could speed it up a bit, but, you know, it's, it's fun. You know, and the other is using... Uh, you know, Zoom and Skype to connect with people. I've been a lot more intentional about, you know, doing that. So, uh, you know, I've re-engaged with even many of my friends from high school. Now we have a debate uh, club uh, every month where we talk about different topics and it's really fun. That's fantastic. Laura, Thank you so much for coming on and being a guest. I uh, I feel like I have a new mentor in the gene therapy space. I got so much out of this. Thank you so much. And I would love to have you back maybe in a year or two when we see where things have gone. We can get an update on Intellia's research. There's so much we, we could have. Clearly, we could have talked for two, three hours, I think. I, I could have listened to you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, and thank you again, Chad, for the opportunity. And I hope to see you in Boston sometime. And, Absolutely. You know, have a nice dinner. Well, that's all for episode six. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss a conversation. If you'd like to hang out with us outside the podcast, we have many webinars and other presentations available for your enjoyment and education. Visit bioagilitics.com to see what's coming up and how you can stay in touch. And don't forget to keep an eye out for more episodes coming soon. We're looking forward to some great guests. We'll have world-renowned experts talking about rare diseases, diversity in the pharmaceutical industry, new and exciting technologies, and a conversation with a patient who has benefited from the recent tremendous developments in our industry. Molecular moments would not be possible without the support of our sponsor, Bioagelytics Labs. Bioagelytics is a global contract research organization specializing in large molecule bioanalysis. Based in Durham, North Carolina, with labs in Hamburg, Germany, and Boston, Massachusetts, Bioagelytics provides high quality bioanalytical services to leading pharma and biotech companies around the world. They offer assay development, validation, and sample analysis under non GLP, GLP, and GCP, as well as GMP quality control testing. If you are looking to work with a team of highly experienced scientific and QA professionals through all phases of clinical development, look no further than Bioagelytics.
For more information or to speak with their scientists today, visit their website at www.bioagilitics.com. Thanks for listening to the Molecular Moments Podcast.